0: Hello, this is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, welcome, everyone. And I hope everybody had a, a good um, Memorial Day weekend. I um, uh, We had some uh, good news here on Rumble. As uh, predicted, we had, um, I believe yesterday, our uh, 10 millionth listener. Our 10 millionth download of Rumble. Uh, it's just... Uh, Again, I'm, I'm always overwhelmed when we, every time we hit this new million mark. I think, well, maybe we'll leave it alone for the, for the next few million. I probably have jinxed it now. You know, we'll never even get to 11 million, but, but I, I'm so grateful to everybody um, who has been listening, who have been telling your friends and your neighbors and your, uh, Uh, relatives about this podcast. Thank you for that. Um, Please share it uh, with others um, and let me know how you feel. Um, You can send me uh, an email and I've gotten a number of emails uh, from you here in the last, many of you, the last few days as we're getting near number 10 million. And um, so we're going to lock that down now and uh, we will have uh, on our next episode, we'll have our drawing and we will, discover who the 10 millionth listener is and reveal the wonderful set of prizes that number 10 million will be receiving. So that, uh, that will be coming up. Um, I, hopefully I believe on the, our next uh, episode. Um, so um, thank you. I guess is all I need to say uh, about all that. Um, I'm glad I decided to do this podcast and it's been good for me to talk to you. I could just put it that way so thank you for that thank you for being there during uh, this dark time and then lo and behold yesterday I wake up and um, no this wasn't yesterday what this was I' got my days confused so Sunday I wake up and there is Donald Trump on Twitter tweeting at me for I don't know how many times now I've, I've lost track of how many times I've been in his uh, Twitter crosshairs. Um, So I'm I'm going to read you uh, his uh, tweet and, uh, and then (laughs) I will have nothing to say about it. Basically this it's uh, anyways, here it is. Uh, Michael Moore torches Biden. He meaning Biden Lacks, and this is he's quoting me, necessary enthusiasm to beat Trump, and then he links to an article in Breitbart where they review my performance on Bill Maher uh, the other night. It was also on Ari Melber on MSNBC on the same night, and um, (laughs) it's it's of course anytime you read anything from uh, on Breitbart or Fox News or whatever, you you already know you're in an alternate. Uh, reality. And so they they failed to mention. And if you want to read, if you missed the either of those shows, you can um the Hill, the dot com. They've got a good uh representation of uh of what I said about um what we've got to do to remove Trump. That's what the whole conversation was about. How do we remove him? We know he's not gonna go on his own. So how will we get him out of there? Um I'm pretty sure he's going to find a way to postpone the election. I think a lot of you probably feel that way too. So what are we going to do about that because we're not going to postpone uh the election. And and then what is what does Biden have to do to uh help inspire people the way people were inspired when they voted for Barack Obama in in 2008? Um I know that's asking a lot of Biden's <laughs> To suddenly go full Obama uh, uh, with us on us here, but uh, so that was what we talked about on, the, on on the show, and I just said, you know, Biden has got to he's he's got to he's got to excite uh, the electorate uh, to to come out. We we can't have a rerun of 2016, and um, and so um, <laughs> so this is Trump's tweet, and then so anyways, he links to Breitbart, and then he continues. Uh, whose idea was it to let Twitter go to 280 characters? This has been the bane of our existence for these uh, last four years. And so here here now, this is Trump in in Trump speak. Um, he, he writes, uh, referring to me, well, he, meaning me, well, he was right in 2016. And we do have great enthusiasm. <laughs> Many say, done a fantastic job. Exclamation point! Yes, many, many do say that Donald, and then he, and then he ends it with DJT, like a little, a little, like little kind of, you know, personal. Just in case we were confused that that's that he's maybe he might still be quoting me. That's he's quoting himself there. Um, this is, and then actually I have to say the picture. Uh, I I'll give this to Trump. Usually when he uh, tweets at me. Uh, he picks a good picture. Uh, I generally don't like any picture of me. Uh, it's just, this is a good picture. So I'll, I'll give him that. But uh, listen, just in case you are listening, Donald, and I know Donald Jr., I know you are listening. So so repeat this carefully if you can to your uh, father. Um, I think I've said this a few times. And and most of you know, obviously, I was a Bernie supporter and... Um, the American people by the tens of millions will crawl through broken glass to get to the polls if necessary to remove you from office. That's just a fact. And I know, I know there's a part of you that is feeling like, ah, shit. This didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And where did this virus come from? And Which Democrat brought it into the country? And, and um, you know, I hate to say it, but, uh, uh, you know, it is, it's, it's, but things could happen. And I, I'll say this to you, Mr. President, I have never taken you for granted. And I have always believed you whenever you've said just about anything either, I believe you because it's the truth. Like you would shoot somebody in the middle of fifth Avenue and get away with it. I I, I believe you were telling the truth when you said that. And I believe that even when you're not telling the truth, I believe you believe you're telling the truth. And if we had a lie detector hooked up to you, you'd pass it. So that makes you even more dangerous. So, um, so the, Let's, let's have the, let's have the great fight over the next few months. Let's have the great fight you have in a democracy and, and, and let the least corrupt, most honest (laughs) and empathetic side win. Um, I think you know that, that the Democrats are going to have to really screw it up at this point for you to stay there. And, and I know your next thought is, yeah, okay. Well, we've seen that before. (laughs) So, yes. So that's why we have to take this very seriously. We have to take you very seriously because you could win. You could win. That's right. And anybody who is afraid to say that is not dealing with reality and it's not doing, not getting ready for the fight that's in front of us here. And I'm just as worried about it as the next person. And, oh, by the way, the next person just happens to be with us here. (laughs) And I'm I'm so glad to have him here on this uh, podcast uh, today. Uh, his name is Derek Hamilton. He's a professor of uh, public policy and economics and sociology and African American studies at Ohio State University. That's right. I said Ohio State University does not have a, uh, what are those things called? A, a preposition? Uh, article? Uh, an, uh, is it called an article? Yeah, it's an article. What's a, what's a, pre- oh, like of is a preposition. Yeah, sir. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm asking a professor. I hope you know. <laughs> so, so, right. It has an article. See, in, Michi- see we're in Michigan, we only have the articles A and N. Uh, so <laughs> it could be uh, N, Ohio State University, uh, but not – I don't know where this, the Ohio State University came from. I'm not going to hold you to it. Uh, Derry Hamilton is actually a native of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, uh, where uh, he grew up. Uh, he went to college at Oberlin College, one of the coolest uh, colleges In the country, uh, as I've traveled this country and spoken at uh, many places, uh, Oberlin's uh, a very, uh, very cool, progressive uh, place in Ohio, actually. And then I got his doctorate uh, at uh, UNC, uh, University of North Carolina. So, uh, Derek, I've asked you to come on today because, uh, you also were a supporter of Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, during the, during the primaries. And, um, and I think those of us, uh, who've read your writings and paid attention to you, uh, for some time really like the way you think and, and speak of our economy, such as it is, and what we need to do uh, to live in a more just and equitable society uh, in this country. And uh, and so um, you um, have been asked to be on what's called the unity task force. Uh, this is where um, Bernie and Biden decided to form like these joint committees. I think there's like six or eight of them on different issues like healthcare. and oh, I don't know. Is healthcare one of them? I can't it, is, yeah. it is one of them. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, uh, foreign policy and the economy. And, and so, and so you have, you were asked to serve on this. So tell me what this is like, the Unity Task Force. And if I built it up too much, like it's like, I'm not for false hope. So you don't have to, you just tell me, tell me what's going on with the Unity Task Force. And, and then I want to get into. What your role in this is going to be. And and also, you and I can talk a little bit about um, what we can do to help bring our fellow citizens out of this pandemic when it's over into a better place. I, I'm so desperate for that to happen. And, I'm, and I am weirdly optimistic that many other Americans are wanting that, too. But just let's start with the Bernie Biden, the Bernie Biden, uh Paris, Oslo peace talks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's what's going on? Have you guys met yet? Uh, do you do arm wrestling? What, uh, what, what what is happening there?
1: Well, first, let me lead off, Michael. With you've heard me say this before, but I, it, it is it rings true, and I get so excited to speak with you. I, I must admit, I am starstruck, and I'm not easily starstruck, uh, but I'm starstruck because of. Not only your entertainment value, you, you, I can, I feel like I can pull out some popcorn and listen to you talk all day, um, but the,
0: the, the don't knowledge. Enc- don't encourage me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you for that. That's kind.
1: I of me. mean, I, I know of no one who can characterize Donald Trump with accuracy the way you have done, and the way that you continue to do. You, you have your pulse on that man. Uh, better than anybody I've ever heard, and of course, many other things that you do. Uh, But uh, to answer the question about the the task force, like you, I'm not into trying to waste time. I mean, I'm committed to an agenda to bring economic justice to American people. And um, I believe that this is a route by which we can make some substantial progress. I mean, otherwise, I personally would not have... Have, uh, have joined, but of course, uh, I don't have full control <laughs> over uh, what gets done and what the outcome will be of, of, the, of the Unity Task Force. And let me also mention that even before the Unity Task Force, if we go back to 2016, the DNC platform itself, which I think a lot of credit can go to Bernie Sanders, was substantially different than previous DNC platforms. So I understand that the platform is really a values document because, you know, in essence, that's what it is. It ultimately has to get legislated. But in that document, I think, to a large credit to Bernie Sanders, there was a lot of stuff in there that hadn't typically been in DNC platforms. And, you know, the extent to which this unity task force can have a role in describing the values of the party, along with putting some policies with teeth. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't take a shot at trying to achieve that.
0: Well, um, we're glad that you're on it, and uh, and I think uh, Stephanie also is is she also on the uh, your committee? You're a part of she this. Is. She yes. is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So we've had her on on our on our podcast here already. So um, so have the meetings started yet? Are you at least zooming with each other? Are um, you know, you know, have there been any icebreakers? You know, what, what, what's yeah. going on? I think that's, or can you not say? Are you trying to do this quietly, or uh, because you know, everybody listening? I've done this. I'm telling you, we're we're in our like fifth month of this now, and. Uh, if I ask people just to keep it amongst themselves, it will not go out on social media or anything.
1: You can, <laughs> it'll I mean, just be
0: between us. <laughs> it, it will be us and the people listening. I'm telling you. I, I, I've, I've, just watch. Just, just just, tell us something that we need to know right now, and you'll see how it'll, it'll – it will, it will, you, won't, you won't read it tomorrow anywhere.
1: All right. No, I, I think uh, it's general enough to say that the committee has begun its work, but, but you are right. We're, we're supposed to deliberate – in a space where allow people to speak freely. So we don't discuss the specifics of the deliberations. But um, I think uh, broadly speaking, I don't think I'm revealing a big secret to say that the work has begun.
0: Is it wrong? What I said at the beginning here that I, you know, I've met, I've met Biden a few times in my life and I have to say, he's always been a very decent uh, guy uh, to me and, uh, and funny. And um, uh, swears like a sailor. And, you know, he's, he's uh, what you see is what you get, basically. Um, so, but, but I just have this sense that either he understands the real politic of this, where he knows that in order to win, if he runs, if he runs Hillary's campaign, um, that is not going to get people out uh, to vote. So, but if he runs something that is um, future thinking thinking into the future and, and you know, understanding that the average age of an American today is 37 and a half years old, mm-hmm. that that's, that's where the country is. And, and that, that we, um, you know, close to 70% of the people who are going to vote in November are either women, people of color, or under the age of 35 or a combination of those three. That's 70% of the electorate right there. So it's not it's not your grandfather's or I'm saying this to Joe, it's not it's not our grandfather's country anymore. It's a it's a new America. And I just have a sense that that um that somehow he's kind of figured that out, even though he'll still, you know, have his uh blunders and say things and, you know, um <laughs> you know, I just <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I am I living in in some kind of uh, uh, la la land here? When I think that maybe uh, you, uh, Stephanie and Bernie, um, <clears throat> that that Biden has somewhat of an open mind and open ears and and is listening, will listen, and possibly understand that if he is willing to take some what will to him will feel like risks, but. But if he understands what the electorate looks like and what the electorate is, that it's really it's really the path to winning. Um, Is that possible? Should we have any hope uh, for that?
1: Yeah. And and let me even back up a little bit and say that I think that the task force came together, not not only with uh, Sanders identifying some individuals and Biden identifying some individuals, um, but both of them thinking about. The individuals that they selected and the ability of those individuals to engage with each other. In other words, I think there was some thought about who Biden would select and Sanders would select from each other as well, if, if that makes any sense. So, you know, the word compromise came up with regards to describing the task force. I hope we don't start at compromise. I hope that's not the position we. I, I can't predict how, where we end up, but the goal shouldn't be to compromise. I think, uh, the goal should be to engage with ideas and ground them in, you know, if we, we live in a world where you can't be void of politics, but ground them in sound understanding about the economy and vulnerabilities. And, and then let, let that, you know, lead with values, come up with the ideas and the policies and see what we come up with. And then, you know, we have to engage in the politics and start hopefully not too much horse trading and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that's important. And then, you know, on the other issue, when we think about what Biden would have to do to win, a lot of this begins and ends with Donald Trump. And that man is, uh, if, if we think about integrity, he is authentically without integrity. (laughs) <laughs> totally,
0: totally devoid of integrity, uh, devoid, devoid of empathy. You know, yeah. th- there's a few things that separate humans from the other species. Um, I, I think one of them is, uh, our ability to laugh. Um, you know, I mean, some people with cats will say they have a sense of humor, but they're just, you know, they just want to believe that, uh, I let them believe it, but, but no, but no, but we, you know, but, but one of those things. Um, that we have is empathy. And that sort of this kind of, and he is devoid of that Trump I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And, um, and this, and all the weird psychoses that he has that depending on what day it is on the cable news shows, they'll describe him as a five-year-old, a 12 year old, an eight year old, you know, I always feel bad for the kids if they're home listening to this, you know, but, <laughs> The the, eight, the eight, listen eight year olds you're fine out there let me tell you eight year old is the coolest age yeah, yeah. Uh, but um it, it's it yeah you're right but but see here's where I worry I think I think it's a losing proposition if we think we're going to get the people out to vote that we need to vote by hoping that just their hatred of Trump or how much they despise Trump is going to be enough to get enough people out at the polls. I th- I think the way you win is with getting people feeling excited and positive um, about the person that they want to, to lead this country. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea of trusting hate as the great motivator.
1: Um, oh, I, I completely agree with you. In fact, hate could be, Used as a motivator the other way as well. In fact, that was well, Donald Trump's strategy. Yes, of course. To use the fact that we've grown so unequal, and to offer uh, this relative status to one group of people to say, "I'm going to restore your rightful place as uh, the head of a hierarchy," uh, and and that was basically a message grounded in hate. Um, but I completely agree with you. The Democrats and Joe Biden, they ca- it can't be what not only to vote ag- to vote against, but what to vote for. Um, So I would encourage uh, Joe Biden to be authentic, right? I think uh, he he has to, you you gotta be yourself. People, especially in contrast to Donald Trump and Donald Trump is skilled at exploiting inauthenticity. So I think the best way to be is to be authentic but with that authenticity, you need to be a good listener. You need to hear where the country is today, hear the pain that people are experiencing Here, a need to come up with a shared prosperity vision to counter the divisive notions that that Donald Trump has plagued us with for so long. And with that listening, that authenticity, come with a set of policies that can really move us into a 21st century economy that's inclusive and that secures economic rights so that people can thrive.
0: Can that happen in a capitalistic society, really? I mean, what you just said, is it – I mean, capitalism or what we'll call latter-day capitalism um, is a system that just seems built on greed where the profit motive is a religion. Um, and and it's, it's more and more set up so that um, the few at the top um, get everything and the rest have to scramble for the crumbs and have to try to get by, you know, all the statistics in terms of how many people live from paycheck to paycheck. The new statistic this year, which which was, I think something like um, 30 to 40% of the American people can't even get to the next paycheck. Like they run out of money on an average of two or three days before payday. Um, The, the level of tension and stress and awful awfulness that that must and does create in people and I just um, what I mean I know there's a lot of things we need to do in the short term like the minimum wage and all that, but when do we ever get to talking about the long term, the big picture and and this thing I don't even know I don't even know if it's called capitalism anymore, but whatever this is that we have where there's a big pie <laughs> on the table and um, you know one, Percent of the country uh gets eight slices of that pie, and and the other ninety nine percent have to fight over the last two slices. When does that end? When can we? Because I want to see it in my lifetime. I think enough people are sick and fed up with this system the way that it is, and especially young people. That's I mean you know you you've seen the polls of young people when they ask you know what do you think about capitalism they hate it. What do you think about socialism? They love it, and you know. And again, those terms are not really what they were at one time. But you know, you're an economist. You teach this. What I mean, teach us right now. Tell us. <laughs> tell us the truth about the the way we structure our economy uh, seems to be purposely set up to benefit the few at the expense of the
1: many. Yeah, and I wouldn't label it capitalism. I would label it neoliberalism because it's well beyond an economic system it's a whole political economy system it's not as if government does not intervene into markets the government inter- has intervened in markets tilted in a way to protect particularly finance but capital in general and you know that that's not exactly capitalism because again there's a whole politics to it and even the the capitalist class is able to rewrite rules to favor themselves by capturing the politics of our nation. And and that's the problem. So it's
0: usually the rules that when they rewrite the rules, it's, it's more, it's, it's laws giving socialism to them. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there, there you have it. So, you know, I, I think we mislabel it when we call it socialism or capitalism. I mean, at the extreme, there probably is some value in people well, you know, I guess there's a command economy versus uh, this notion of of, uh, complete liberalism where government doesn't intervene. And probably, here's what I'm advocating for. An alternative to neoliberalism, and I can give a precise definition of what that is, but an alternative to neoliberalism would be a government who fulfilled this fiduciary responsibility by not only ensuring civil rights and political rights, but economic rights, recognizing that there are a set of essential goods and services that are so criti- critical for people to have agency and dignity in their lives, mm-hmm. that their, their production, their distribution, and access to them should not be solely determined on a for-profit motive where you have firms trying to fulfill their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. So the government has a different objective than firms. And as a result, you know, I can make this concrete. What are those essential goods and services? Healthcare. We should have Medicare for all. We should have single payer health insurance. What else? Nobody should be hungry. In the richest country in the history of humankind, and everybody always says that, (laughs) but uh, the the most wealthy country, we have enough, we have an abundant amount where people should not be hungry. We could talk about what else? Uh, you probably could name some too. Uh, a right to shelter. No, Nobody should be homeless. Uh, a right to capital. We understand that if you don't have capital at a key point in your life, we can use these narratives about choice, about freedom. That's an illusion. Freedom and choice, they become an illusion if you lack an economic foundation by which you can make an authentic choice. If I'm hungry, the right to protest, the right to engage in business, you know, that's all irrelevant because I have no nest egg to get started. You know, I've talked about, for example, baby bonds. Why well, not? You know, I'm not anti-trust funds. I'm for extending trust funds to everyone. Every young adult should begin their life with some nest egg by which they can have financial agency in their lives. And then, you know, we obviously need to think about race in this country, And if I go back into this and describe the ways in which this neoliberalism has been able to persist, Donald Trump becomes a clear target and example of the ways in which this system has perpetuated itself. In other words, as we become more unequal, people care about their vertical position in society. And unfortunately, they care about their horizontal position in society. So we've been captured by this narrative that the government started acting in a way to favor deadbeat dads, welfare queens, super predators, all this racialized terms that also spill over onto white people. I mean, we basically, um, you know, I, I would use a bad word if I characterize what's being done, but we basically use anti blackness on white poor people as well. We other them, we blame them for their position in life, we say that they've made poor choices but we never look at resource deprivation. And uh, so anyway, going back to the point I was trying to make, as we become more vertically unequal, unfortunately, we care about status also. So what's sold and what Donald Trump did was he came in and said, I'm going to build a wall to protect white people from Mexicans coming in. That basically is, is offering somebody a horizontal position. Mexicans aren't your enemy. Mexicans were not coming in and taking jobs in, in mass, nor were they in mass threatening the lives of Americans, if, if we're serious and honest. Uh, th- but that was a distraction. And it was a tangible benefit um, that, that was offered. And then his strategy towards black people was to try to convince the masses of black people that it doesn't make a difference whether you vote Democrat or Republican, that it's still going to be the same for you. So you might as well Vote for me or stay home. That was his strategy. And that comes back to the point that you were making. The Democrats have to do more than talk about what's wrong with Trump. They need a policy agenda to offer all Americans in an inclusive way, something tangible so that we're not vulnerable to a despotic leader who's willing to divide us and uh, and tell us either stay home because it doesn't make a difference or I'll give you some status. Uh, in exchange for you being willing to go along with a system where me and my friends continue to accumulate political and economic power at the
0: top. I, um yeah, geez, you know, part of me does not want to further the despair that people feel when yeah. they, you know, and so they're listening to you and I talk right now. And um, this, the, the um
1: and the I'll pro- jump in real quick, Michael, yeah. and I'm sorry, I'll do this one. No, time. no, no,
0: no, no, no. Go ahead because I'm struggling to say what I really want to say here. But so go ahead. I
1: mean the, the issue with despair, here's the terminology we need to start using. It is our government, it is our money, it is our economy. So the hell would despair, take it back. It is ours. So that you know that 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 needs to be understood. When we start switching our frame to one, beginning with some values. What are the values that we have as people? What are our humanistic values? It's not just self-interested accumulation that knows no bounds in a, in a basically colonial frame where we try to position our group better than another group. Another set of human values is morality, is sustainability, is shared prosperity. When we adopt these values and commit to them, and then recognize that it is our money, it is our economy, and it is our government. That's when we're able to, I guess, come up with a political movement to where it doesn't matter who's in office, whether it's, it's uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, it's our government, our money. And I love Senator Sanders' campaign, campaign slogan when he said, "Not me, us," because that that is shifting the frame. And I, and I think you know my my optimism is that. My generation, and I think we're in the same generation, uh, we came up under Reagan, Thatcher, where, especially being black, I was told that if I can go to the Ivy League schools and just work real hard, I'll be fine. That, you know, the source of economic mobility, I was the captain of my fate. But I've seen a whole lot of my, you know, I, right now I'm in a fairly fortunate position, so let me not be a hypocrite. But I've seen a whole lot of my friends, brethren, and family who've done all the right things who've done all all the the things that they were supposed to do and still end up in not good economic and health positions so we got caught up in that rhetoric of of just work hard and because it's appealing it tells us we have agency in our lives you know that that is something that people absorb you want to be the captain of your fate but young people today i'm proud of them they they usher in these you know we will not tolerate fossil fuel we will not tolerate um, discrimination against Black people and discrimination against women, movements like Occupy Wall Street, movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, um, and then you know the climate strike that took place. So to me, the optimism is they're like, <laughs> I guess I can say this, they're like, F you. <laughs> we don't care. We demand justice. That's the framing that we need to get to. We need to redefine our economy to include moral values like our common humanity, like dignity, like sustainability. I think that's the game changer.
0: If you had a magic wand though, if you if you could just if you could just wave it and fix not everything, but just fix one thing, fix a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you've been sort of given a magic wand because you have a seat at the table uh, <laughs> on this task force, yeah, right? I mean you do you do you get to they're not going to listen to me you they're going to listen to you you're yeah. going to get to say a few things and maybe trigger an idea or two that um that if uh Joe Biden and whoever his running mate is uh when when they run on on this it will energize and excite people uh to come out and vote not out of just hate for Trump, but out of really seeing a new kind of world we could live in. What? So I've just given you the magic wand. Um, <laughs> if you could fix, just fix, just fix one thing e- economically, um, and 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 we'll. Ta- I want to talk. We'll talk about the pandemic in a little bit here, but just in general, um, you must have thought this. You must have. Everybody plays the game. If I were president, here's what I would do. You know. I mean, I, I and, and, and I've. People who listen to the podcast know my whole platform if I were to run for president and and the number one, number one plank in my platform is one charge cord for all devices. For your phone, (laughs) your tablet, (laughs) your laptop. There's just one. There's one. Just like there's every electrical device, there is one cord with two prongs in it. And it's been that way for over a hundred years. And a hundred years ago, they didn't know what a TV was or a computer or even a refrigerator. And everything has still to this day as those two prongs and a cord that goes to the electronic device, but not, not with our, not with our new tech. Every, it's, <laughs> I'm just saying this because I'm just sick and tired of losing the cords and having to pay another, you know, 39 or $79 for whatever, but okay. I've given you now. I just, that was just a little, a little comedic, uh, interlude to give you some time to think about. Now you see the magic wand in your hand. Uh, what would you do?
1: Well, first I would rather be the benevolent dictator rather than president. Can I change my title?
0: It's- yeah yeah let's try, tell uh, tell us what that would look no tell us what that would look like cuz and, and we understand the benevolent part you're not going to there's not going to be violence you're not going to enact your ideas uh <laughs> w- w- in, a, in a Mussolini sort of way uh but if you were a benevolent dictator benevolent yeah. meaning full of love what yeah. would you do
1: yeah and, and and i also need to realize that i can't be the humorous one on the
0: podcast with you <laughs>
1: no 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 please we need as much
0: laughter right now as possible
1: <laughs> no but uh to get to the point uh, I would enact especially given the scenario that we're in and I know we're going to talk about the pandemic but a federal job guarantee that if we had a public option for jobs that were that would ensure that anyone who desired to work could work, it would l- eliminate involuntary unemployment it would eliminate working poverty because the jobs would be productive jobs with at least decent wages, at least decent benefits. And when I said productive jobs, the jobs would be building our physical and human infrastructure so that we are more resilient to a pandemic that surely will come again, more resilient to a climate catastrophe and any type of economic downturn And ensuring that we're putting our public power to work to build the essential goods and services that the private sector is not doing because of different motivations. This doesn't replace the private sector, but it provides a complementary discipline on the private sector. So take, for example, if you are a woman who is waiting tables and putting up with sexual harassment and You can't leave that job because you have mouths to feed, including your own, so you put up with the harassment at work. Well, that's just one example of the way if we had a federal jobs guarantee, workers would be empowered to bargain better for their wages, their benefits, and working conditions more broadly, whether they were in a federal job or not. Right now, employers have too much power, and a federal job guarantee would be one that would rebalance power towards workers, but in the process, build out our physical and human infrastructure. And why did I say human infrastructure? Because in the past, we talked about public work jobs in out in the history of, you know, American history, we talk about building bridges, building uh, transportation, but we also need a care society. So we could literally provide the public sector, ensuring that we have care for all of our people from birth all the way through when we become elders, child care, adult care, elder care, etc.
0: So the woman who's being sexually harassed at the restaurant, who's uh, working the tables and whatever, um, if there's a federal jobs guarantee, can she just say to hell with this? I'm not working here anymore, but not be afraid that she's going to be without if she leaves this job full of harassment, is is that what you mean? Is that you're saying that that yeah. we would have a system to where um, there's that safety net that would be there,
1: yes,
0: uh, and and that and that you there will be a job for you. You don't have to stay here and take this crap.
1: That's exactly what I mean. That there is a competitive alternative where the threat of being destitute from unemployment gets removed. And that, to a large extent, gives employers a great deal of bargaining power. If a worker is faced with, if I don't put up with what's going on in this workplace, I'm going to be unemployed and not able to feed my family, it will make you, it will force you to have to do things that are sometimes undignified. I mean, an analogy could be as a university professor, I am so privileged and have the ability to go out. And talk freely in many ways that I otherwise wouldn't be able to if I didn't have tenure. And I'm not saying that tenure gives me unlimited uh, privilege to literally just say whatever I want. I can't scream fire in the theater, but I don't have that threat of losing my job because I say something because I have tenure. So, you know, obviously it's not the same thing, but what a federal job guarantee does is it provides. A check on the private sector that says that if you want to hire American workers, you have to offer at least this in terms of wages. It's a backdoor way of getting health insurance. Now, this is not a, a end-all policy to uh, address all of our issues. It's not a silver bullet policy, but it is a big policy that has a lot of spillover effects. Like I said, it will, <coughs> excuse me, if the federal government a federal job guarantee offers health insurance, then if you want to hire workers, you have to offer health insurance. Otherwise, workers have a choice. If we decide that workers should not work 40 hours a week, that a typical work week should be something like 35 hours a week, well, we can make that decision by use of a federal job guarantee. In other words, our society is set up that we discipline workers, that workers are disciplined in a lot of ways but with a federal job guarantee, it flips the script and offers a disciplinary mechanism on the private sector. It says that you have to do at least this if yeah. you want to engage in our labor markets. And, and one more thing, Michael, yeah, real yeah, quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is not new and radical. If we look at American history, these big monuments that we have, our roads, our bridges, this is all grounded in a New Deal framework Where historically, the public sector has used its massive power not only to put Americans to work, but to build infrastructure for our country. So, again, it's a it's a misnomer that this is somehow radical. This is consistent with our American history.
0: If you, uh, you know, I have some friends, they live in Europe, they live in Australia, they live in Canada. (laughs) They do not understand when they hear Americans talk about, I can't, I can't leave my job because of the benefits. I can't lose the benefits, and they're like, "Wow, so you're forced to stay at a job you may not want to stay in?" Y- yeah. Um, whereas if you're Canadian, or you're Irish, or you're Australian, or actually, I think if you're Kenyan, uh, if you are Chilean, I mean, even even in countries that are not first world countries. They have a basic ethos that says that a person should have some kind of choice. And and so if you don't like your job in Canada, um, go get another job because you're never going to be without your health insurance. Yeah. Um, yep. You want to take a sabbatical? <laughs> you know, the, I don't know. the work. I've always wanted to start out like a working class uh, sabbatical idea here, but- For another show. But they, um, (laughs) but you know, if you want to take five months off, take five months off. You know what? You're still covered. You still have health insurance. Yep. There's still money that's going into your retirement. There's still, there's, there's, there, you're, you're, all the things that are covered where you don't have to worry about in, in, in most of Europe, you don't have to worry about your parents uh, being in the gutter or the way we do it here where, your parents have to go bankrupt. They have to force themselves into bankruptcy before um, uh, uh, Medicare will um, then, say, pay for the nursing home or whatever. Yep. It's it's such a cruel system. I and mean, when you see how the rest of the world lives and they don't have to live this way, the freedom.
1: What you're describing, Michael, is part of the point that we need a package of goods and services, like it's not just going to be a federal job guarantee. If, if you know, if tasks were coming up with one policy, that's the one I would lead with, because the right to have a job with all the benefits and wages that go along with it is critical. And it has the spillover effect of making our economy more resilient to not only business cycle swings, but to to ensure that we all have some Security with regards to public, physical and human infrastructure, but that can't be at all. We need capital in our lives. People need to start off with some capital so that they have an option to have a, to have a home if they want to have a home. They do this in other
0: businesses. countries. A baby a baby is given I know this is true in France. If you're, when you're born, it's like you get like you, well you I think you called them baby bonds, yep. but but the government um, puts money into your account. They open an account for you. It's in your name, and when you're 18, you have access to that account. You can use it. uh, Well, you don't need to use it to go to college because college, everything from a trade school to the Sorbonne in France, is free. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but you maybe you take it and you go travel around, travel around Europe uh, for a year, get to know people, get to know the world you live in um you know that money is yours it's it's there for you so you get you get a leg up when you go out in the world as an adult
1: thomas paine in in american history talked about endowing everybody at birth with at, at the time he was talking about it in terms of agriculture because we were an agrarian society but i agree this idea is not so again the word is radical what what is radical is believing that the market and marketized solutions is all that we need to address All our needs and wants in society That's a radical concept And and you know we've evolved to a point Where that idea has encompassed Our whole political economy structure But I agree that things like Healthcare, things like Going to college, all that Shouldn't be tied to a job That those are separate things in and of themselves That our government should ensure That there's adequate quality And access to everyone
0: Give me another one, <laughs> I like this first one <laughs> <laughs> give, give me something else you do because, you know. I mean, what happens like next January 20th and, and all of a sudden Biden asks you to be, you know, to run his council on economic, uh, not council of economic advisors or whatever that's called. Uh, and, there, and there you are. You actually are in the room, you know, and you're actually able to suggest, why don't we try this? We're the United States of America. We have the means. We have the people. We we have the will. Um, let's let's do. Give me another idea. Just give me another one. I just. Uh,
1: I mean, I, public banking is one. You know, think about
0: what's everybody that? Public in, banking,
1: ensuring that everybody has access to a high quality account that is affordable or free. So that that, that that's an example, right? You think about the the checks that went out, the twelve hundred dollars checks. If you didn't have a bank account chances are you still might not have received your check if you have to receive a paper check. So, you know, a 21st century economy, something like that is a basic need that everybody should have access to. We could think about using the postal system combined with the Federal Reserve or, or even Treasury to ensure that we have adequate finance and banking for everyone, that they're not at the whim of a banking sector and again, I'm not casting moral judgment on the private sector, although we can. They do what they do. They are for-profit entities. We make the mistake in thinking that they're gonna do something else.
0: Yeah, plus it's my job on the podcast here to cast moral judgment on them. don't worry, you don't you don't have to do that. But what you're saying is is that we have this incredible postal system. You know, I was thinking yeah. this the other day when Trump was proposing sacking the whole thing, and and uh it's it's like it's the there's only one you only have a, there's only one person from your government that comes to see you every day. It's the mail woman or the mailman. It's the, it's, I mean, it's, it's the most amazing system when you think about it. Every neighborhood, <clears throat> down to the smallest village of, of maybe 70 people, there is a post office for everyone in America. And, and to get rid of that system, the way I've always thought this too, like if, if the government needed to send us all, water purification tablets or, you know, some kind of medicine, all of a sudden they have the ability to get something to every single one of us 24 to 48 hours from now. I mean, it just, it seems like like now in these modern times, it's kind of a a genius infrastructure thing to have around. But what you're saying is that especially for people that can't afford the private banking system and what it does and what it takes and all that, the post office could be the local bank for yes. the pe- like the people's Bank
1: yes, yeah. I mean post office provide regional balance in our country as, as you've been describing, so uh, you know I'm with you and indeed, you know when I engage with the banking sector i'm I'm of a of a certain economic status um, and I'm sure you are too where banks sometimes give us stuff with with a credit card they'll they'll give us not only favorable terms. Um, but they offer us rewards in return. We're not subject to the predation that sometimes come about from being poor and not having economic access. That's not fair. I mean, we, we should have a federal government that is protective of every American so that they're not vulnerable to predation. Again, this doesn't crowd out the private sector in totality. It crowds out some of the predation that comes about from the private sector. It doesn't leave us to the vulnerable whim Of just trying to make profit.
0: All right, I'm going to take the wand out of your hand now. Um, These are are really good ideas, but I I want to get to I want to get to the fact that um, a lot of us have had a lot of time uh, because some of us are fortunate, as you said, that uh, we we are you and I do not have to go at midnight to our job tonight and stock uh, the shelves of the local grocery store. Uh, You know, you and I. I
1: got a paper due tomorrow
0: you do you, no, you, I, you <laughs> uh, I was gonna say, do you need any help? This is over, you know, I could I could tutor you maybe um, right. the, um, no, but but it's it's uh so those of us who've been you know home in lockdown, probably not, but I'm guessing too, if you're stuck on the shelf at two in the morning, you got a lot of friggin thoughts going through your head about the way this world should be. So I think this is true for just about anybody. Um, who is a, is a working person, whether you're home or you're working at a job right now. Um, I think a lot of people I've noticed, it's just the things, the voicemails that people leave me on this podcast or people have a lot of ideas. They're thinking a lot right now. There's a lot of, uh, like what would the world look like if we just did this a little differently? I don't want to go back to the old normal. I mean, there's a lot of things I want to go back to. Um, but I don't. I don't want to go back to all of it, because a lot of it wasn't very good, and a lot of it wasn't very fair. And w- what if we, what if we came out of the pandemic, and we said to each other, "Wow, that was a hell of a learning experience." Um, we now know just how broken our healthcare system is. Forget forget about the Medicare for All part. Well, like we don't even have gloves, we don't have masks. We weren't able to protect are people that work in the hospitals. Um, so we know now just how awful, what a stinking system it is and the way Trump used the, the, the national, um, the stockpile and used that, giving that to places so they could sell it, resell it, make a profit. Ah, oh, geez. I think people are sick of this. And we all may not know what to do on the other end of this, but we're going to need people like you and Stephanie and others I've had on this podcast to propose some simple, cool, good ideas of how we could do things differently from this point on. So let me ask you that question, especially in, in terms of economics but but you're also a social scientist you're also you you do a lot of work with public policy so you know you're you're um, multitasking over a number of things that we need uh here and tell me what tell me what we could look like as the american people as this great country after we come out of the pandemic how do we go to something that that's new and not go back to the old way that wasn't working
1: yeah and you know what i should go back and make sure i don't sound insensitive to the fact that focusing so much on jobs when we have essential workers being asked to come to work and being put in vulnerable positions where they're not properly protected perhaps like the person at midnight who's being asked to come uh, stock shelves but doesn't have proper equipment i shouldn't be so insensitive to recognize that plight as well so what we're talking about is not we're talking about safe secure jobs where we have the public infrastructure so that everybody has PPE and is protected. So I just want to add that clarity. Sure. Um, now now the point that you raised if you know hate to use the word silver lining. That's not the appropriate word because this is this is horrendous. And the first thing we need to do first and foremost is make sure people are healthy, secure, and even that dichotomy that's being presented as if, you know, we, we need to open our economy up so as to make sure that we have economic activity, even if it's putting American lives at risk. That, that's a false choice. When we talk about an economy, you have to begin with mortality first and foremost. Our health is the most important ingredient to a successful economy. So I, I, I'm of the side where we should use public power to rebalance the economic consider- conditions that we face rather than asking Americans to risk their lives for the sake of capital. The analogy of talking about somebody going to work and being a soldier in a war—that's a problematic analogy that we should reject. We we shouldn't ask people to put their lives at risk. I mean, I'm not that I'm for soldiers putting their lives at risk at <laughs> lives at risk either. But th- to me, that's a poor analogy. But that said, Michael, going back to to the point of your question, I'm optimistic and hopeful that, um, you know. That, that we will get to the point where we recognize, for example, from COVID-19, there's clearly a collective vulnerability that took place. Many of us are, we're, we're in varying degrees, we're all affected by this pandemic, either in terms of a health risk or our economic risk, but it's clear. I mean, when a prime minister of the UK ends up with COVID-19, clearly it's, it's, a, it's a pandemic that puts us all at risk obviously some of us are more at risk than others. We know that uh, black people are, I, I believe the reports have three times the mortality from COVID-19 compared to white individuals. Right. Now that's horrible. That—that That is indicative of a national failure. When something that's seemingly random like a pandemic can affect you because of your racial identity in such dramatic ways, we're failing as a nation and we can do better. So my point is that even though we have this collective vulnerability during the times of a pandemic, they're everyday vulnerabilities that people live with regardless or not, regardless of whether we're actually in a pandemic or not. So we really can, it's not pie in the sky, we really can have a better society where we get rid of that, with that vulnerability, where we, again, we have, here's some other good positive things that have come out from this pandemic. Now, We all know that the congressional response has been inadequate, but nonetheless, there's been some unprecedented things by their, their actions that when people say we can't do something, there's evidence that we can. So the ability for the federal government to amass large sums of resources in a relatively quick time and distribute them, well, we've shown we can do that. So we can do that whether or not we're in a pandemic. We have that capacity. The ability to send direct checks to individuals in the United States. Well, hell, why don't we eliminate poverty by literally sending checks to to people who are poor? And, you know, everybody will say, well, won't that discourage them from working? We already have in place an earned income tax credit system where people get tax credits and uh, I guess subsidy associated with being being poor and working in a way that encourages well, w- work but we arbitrarily say that people who don't work aren't, don't have access to, to any type of tax credits. Well, our tax code should be economically inclusive, everyone should take part, and it should be socially equitable. If we want to talk about a basic income, we can do it through our tax code, and then we can expand the earned income tax credit beyond just an anti-poverty program, but we can extend it to all, not only working class individuals, Anybody that gets below the median income, why don't we use the tax code so that we're enriching enriching their lives, trying to encourage encourage their income up to at least the median or middle class? I'm sorry if I'm in the weeds with that type of program description, but my larger point is that perhaps a positive thing that have come out from this pandemic, the notion that government can't, yes, they can, and we don't only need to have government action we can do it when there's a pandemic we can do it when there's not a pandemic
0: are we ever going to have to listen to that that line again of of how are you going to pay for that wow where, yeah. where are we going to get the money where are we going to get the money for that you know yeah. i mean i just every time every debate poor bernie how are you going to pay for that and then then we go through this and it turns out we can pay for anything That's you know right. it's like wow what that what they've let an awful secret out of the bag that our, <laughs> our United States government has the ability to do anything.
1: That's so why Mitch it, McConnell is fighting so hard. He does yes. that secret out. <laughs> no, well, it's out now. Everybody <laughs> yeah. knows.
0: And so now, so now the average American's like, wow, if the government can do and pay for anything, hmm, what would I like? <laughs> you know, yeah. what would? I, what's the country I want to live in? What would that look like? and how would i have my government pay for that because now we know it can and it's just it's it's i think i think people have got it now i think they have figured out the ruse that we've all lived under for so many decades and yeah. coming out of this i hope people will demand that the government do what we need it to do to take care of the people and the way the people should be taken care of, the way they're taken care of in every other first world country except this one.
1: We need only look back at our history at programs like the Homestead Act, like uh, the GI Bill, uh, like various other programs. These were literally entitlements. These were literally giveaways where the government gave away land and built. Now there's some problem in these programs. We know that they gave away Native American land and we know that to a large extent blacks were excluded. Um, but nonetheless, my point is that we have a history of government entitlement, government direct giveaways. Now, again, unfortunately, they weren't done in a, in an inclusive way to include all races, ethnicities, and all uh, all genders. But nonetheless, our American history is steeped with government providing the resources so that its people can thrive.
0: You wrote something in Slate uh, earlier this month, uh, like an op-ed or an essay, about what if we were to consider a new deal uh, coming out of this pandemic? What if we went back to the, to the concept that uh, FDR had, that we need a new deal for all Americans? You know, Just describe to people kind of what that new deal would look like
1: yeah I mean it would be an economic rights frame we we would identify you know I would cancel the debt just like Bernie said the student debt and medical debt you know let let's start afresh cancel that debt and ensure that everyone has a quality education from grade school all the way through college so public the public education should be tuition free for everyone, not simply because education leads to a better job simply because In this country, everybody should have access to the ability to synthesize information, critically think. So we should have right to a college education, a right to a job, baby bonds, a birthright to capital, a right to finance. You know, again, I I can name some things, but uh, you probably could too. a right to housing, a right to basic income. We should identify what are the essential goods and services that people need to thrive in their lives. So it would be the, the fruition of what FDR said in his 1944 State of the Union when he called for a second Bill of Rights. He called for an economic Bill of Rights. We, we didn't fulfill that. In fact, if we think about our political economy and we talked a little bit about capitalism Neoliberalism was a revolt against the progress made from the New Deal and the Civil Rights Movement, where the capitalist class said, this has to stop. And they were systematic in coming up with a political economy strategy, both in narrative, both in using the divisiveness of race. Again, we talked about all the framing around deadbeat dads, welfare queens, the, the undeserving poor. They used all that framing to... And uh, uh, accompanied with, you know, we talked about it's not enough for Biden to critique Trump. You have to have something positive. Well, in that neoliberalism, neoliberal framing, they talked about freedom. They talked about choice. They used those words in an inauthentic way in order to galvanize a movement through the academy. You know, we can go on and on and on about the manner in which they did it. But it has led to where we are today. And a big point is that we can have a different path. Inequality is a political choice; it is not inevitable. Right.
0: Yes, that people. I actually want people listening to this. Um, I'll post it on the podcast page here, along with this episode. Uh, FDR's uh, um, uh, Derek mentioned FDR's what he called a second Bill of Rights. He said that we we there's there there's some rights that. You know, at the time when the country began, they, they weren't things that maybe they thought of. But but now that we got into the twentieth century, he realized that that every human being, every American, should have a right to X, Y, and Z. And um, I was making one of my films. Uh, it's called "Capitalism: A Love Story." And um, my incredible group of archival uh, people uh, found the footage. Of, he had to give his State of the Union in 1944 uh, from home in the White House because he was getting very ill and um, couldn't go to Congress and give it. And so he, he just he gave it uh, um, from his office or his, one of his rooms. And he asked that um, – um, it was just over the radio, but he, he asked at the end of it because uh, he'd set up for a newsreel crew to come in. They were just going to take some shots of him given the state of the union over the microphone. And he said, no, I want you to film that one part of it. I'm going to do it over again. I want to do this one part, my second bill of rights. And I need, I need this on film because he knew he was dying and he wanted this to live. And he wanted people to see him say it. And I had heard for years that it existed, but the Roosevelt library in Hyde Park said that no, they didn't have it. It didn't exist. It was only on audio. And so my wonderful team found it. Um, I'm trying to remember the story now. I think, I think it was at a college, it was in some archive or library at a college in South Carolina. If, if I remember correctly, somebody will tell me and set me straight if I got that wrong. But, uh, we got the footage and we put it in the film and then we donated it uh, to the Roosevelt Library so that there would be this lasting, uh, document visually of him calling for the second Bill of Rights. So, um, look for that on, on the, on the podcast, whatever platform you're on, just look for it in the description here and uh there'll be a link and, and you can it's just a few minutes is all it is. But it's it's stunning to see the president of the United States in nineteen forty four, Derek, um say that that every American should have a right to a home. Every American should have a right to a quality education. Every American should have a right and he just goes down through all these things, and the, and he sh- and that should be in the Constitution, and um, and so, and it was and I in the film I point out how Roosevelt and his and after he was gone, he died, you know, just a few weeks before the end of the European part of World War Two, um, but all his people from his administration that were there and that, and continued to work with Harry Truman, they went and they helped the new Germany and the new Japan and the new Italy. Uh, these American advisors to Roosevelt helped to write their new democratic, you know, democracy, I mean, not, not party, constitutions in Italy, Germany, and Japan. And in these constitutions are all those things that Roosevelt wanted for us. The healthcare, the, the, the right to a job, all this, all this stuff. They put it in... Because they thought, you know, we've got to we've got to help these countries come. They got to come out of this, and they've got to be thriving democracies. And and they worked with the the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese. And it's it's I think I think each of them actually have a uh, uh, like an equal rights amendment (laughs) for women. They were they they just they just put that in 1945. These other countries have all this stuff we don't have. It's so sad. Um, Yeah. But it's. I'm glad you brought it up because it really, it's. We can still have it. We can still have it. Why not?
1: It's an enlightened society, not a radical society. It's again. I like to emphasize what we have now is pretty damn radical. It's pretty damn radical that the top 0.1 percent of earners in America have more wealth or as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. That's radical. That's a radical distribution. But. An enlightened society is one where we ensure that no one is hungry, that everyone has quality health care, education, capital, income, jobs, these basic necessities that you need to really have choice in your life. It's not enough to be able to have political rights, not that we have all those anyway. It's not enough to have civil rights, again, clearly not that we have all those anyway. We need economic rights as well. That has to be part of the human rights package for an enlightened society.
0: Well, I got to tell you, Derek, it's been great listening to you say these things. I have such hope for what you're going to do on this unity task force with the uh, the Biden and the Bernie uh, people, uh, trying to put together um, the platform and, and and what you know what the Democratic Party is going to present to the American people here this summer and fall. Um, And it's, uh, man, it's the, you're doing the Lord's work. You know that, right? Um, it's really, it's so important at this point because if we don't, if we don't come out of this, um, I just, I fear that four years of Trump could take us 30 years to recover from if we don't blast our way out, blast our way out of this with new, fresh, bold ideas, um, and, you know, the fact that you get to be part of this task force that's going to put this together, you know, um, for those of us uh, who know you and who followed you. Um, and I'll, I'll post a couple of your op-eds, one from the New York Times recently, and and I mentioned Slate, uh, so people can, can read some of this. And um, we didn't even get into talking about Ohio State, you know, and the... <laughs> It's, 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 you don't understand. If you come from Michigan, it's just such a, it's, it's, and it's not just Ohio state. It's like the minute you cross the border into Ohio, first of all, you better be careful because they're, the police are looking for anybody with Michigan license plates and you will get a ticket. You will not get 20 miles into Ohio without a ticket. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get in any trouble here with, uh, the people at uh, at Ohio state. Um, one of my best friends teaches there and, uh, uh, lots of good people have gone there. I can't name any right now, but um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's, uh, man, It's we need people like you in the Midwest teaching, teaching young people. So thank you for that. Um,
1: you know, I'm going to say I, I did a postdoc in Michigan, so I got some Ann Arbor roots, and I know you have allegiance to the to the Michigan State <laughs> uh, the team with yeah. the green, the Spartans. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll say that we have to say the Ohio State University. You, you got to yeah. include that article. The when did,
0: yeah, but when did that come? When did that? I'm swear to God, when I was growing up, nobody called it the Ohio State. When did that start? Who? What marketing person came in and said, you know, we've got to we've got to put an article. We got to put the word the in front of us because there's there's all these other great institutions of learning in Ohio, and we have to separate ourselves somehow uh, from them and stand above them. So do you know when this happened? Because I swear to God, when I was a kid, there was no such thing called the Ohio State University.
1: I, I can't date it. I, you know, I, I am going to express immense pride in uh, my, my institution, the Ohio State University. Oh, brother, we uh, said it again. I can't believe it.
0: Right. It's like, you know, you're, you're less and less sounding like you're from Bed-Stuy. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's like... Uh, no, I mean when you grow up in Brooklyn, <laughs> do you even think of Ohio? Do you even does the idea of Ohio when you're growing up here in New York City even come into your brain? It's just and yet you decided to go to college. You went to Oberlin. You did decide to go to Ohio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well um oh, What was wrong in your household? Just tell me what
1: <laughs> you can see. So What happened? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Well, Oberlin was one of the first institutes to, edu- well, was the 1st coeducational co-educational uh, college in the in the country, first school to have black students admitted. Matter of fact, it would not have been founded if they didn't allow black students at its origin. That was one of the sticking points of, of one of the big donors, John Frederick Oberlin. So I, I'll, I'll say that that history is something I'm proud of. Um, now, you know, bed is my home, do or die. Um, I, I was there from the '70s through some of the hard times. I got such affinity to that neighborhood. That's always going to be my home. I also want to point out, I did a postdoc in Michigan, so I got I got some some roots up there as well. Okay, I like did. I didn't. Know, I
0: didn't know that. And you know, and did you actually spend time in Ann Arbor?
1: I did two years in Ann Arbor. Oh wow! I, I'd, I'd say that you know that was transformative for me. One one of the things that I'm privileged in my education is. I didn't just get trained in economics, I did some postdocs that exposed me to other disciplines outside of economics. And I'd say that that has um, been critical to, to help my, my development, and I would encourage it for all students. You, you can't be so myopic and focus exclusively on one, one discipline. You got to recognize that there are forces beyond which you're trained in economics and understanding our economy. You need some sociology, politics, critical race theory, etc. <laughs> You need all that. And, and Michael, I, I'm running my mouth and I got to get this in. And that is um, my one of my biggest strengths that I'm self-aware of is being just that self-aware. So I suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes in these spaces. I still feel like I got to pinch myself. I mean, I'm proud of my roots from Bedside where, you know, they're, I love uh, now I'm on a, a rambling, a, a ramble. Uh, one of the commercials that uh, LeBron James was in. He cited uh, notions of humble beginnings, and his idea of a transformative society mm. is one where there are no more humble beginnings. That gave me goosebumps. Wow. I love that yeah. quote from him. Wow. But but in saying all of that too, I'm so humble and honored to be on a podcast with you, and I mean that from my heart. It is a, I have admired your work for a long time. I've am- admired your courage, and you know it makes me feel really good and honored that I can sit in here in a podcast with you and have this conversation. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you, thank you. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. Thank you, uh, Derek Hamilton. Uh, Thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, None of us know what's going to happen in these next six to nine months. Um, And I think we're all on pins and needles. So um, do your best for us. And uh, we'll be watching and uh, hopefully you can come back on and give us all the good news um, sometime here in the the future. So, again, thank you very much. Derek Hamilton, um, professor at the Ohio State University (laughs) in economics, public policy, sociology and African-American studies. And um, and now a new friend of the Rumble podcast. So be well, my friend. Thank you. So that's great uh, talking to to Derek there um, about um, um, the near future, the in the in the current future, in other words, uh, today, um, yesterday. Um, as you know, I released a film made by a friend of mine, Jeff Gibbs. Incredible, brilliant documentary called "Planet of the Humans," powerful. Um, it's been seen by it's pushing eight eight and a half million people now, getting close to that. Uh, it's it's um, so many people have seen this and have been very moved by uh, Jeff's um, um, uh, gentle and generous way of looking and caring about this planet that we live on, and in how sadly we are losing the battle um, against the climate catastrophe that we're in. And, um, people seem afraid to want to either say it or admit it or whatever. And, uh, and he just does. And for 98 minutes, he shows you the real shape that we're in the truth, not the, not the happy happy happy, happy talk that we get. Um, uh, it's, it's not good, but, but I've always believed by acknowledging the truth, um, is our first step in, um, in saving ourselves, saving this planet. And um, so, but from day one, uh, there has been a concerted attack uh, on this film full of unbelievable slander, falsehoods. Um, It really struck a nerve with the people that are supposed to have been responsible for leading us and leading our environmental movement. And um, they don't want you to see the shape we're in, and they don't want you to see their role in um, in not getting us to where we should have been by now. And maybe it's on all of us that, depending on leaders and organizations making things happen, sometimes, you know, maybe all the time, things only happen when you and I and millions of others decide to do it. Um, so the film is it's a it's it's a real eye opener, but it's a it's it's been a poke in the eye, I guess, for for some people um who uh don't want a filmmaker like Jeff bringing up the connection between capitalism, between big big business, Wall Street, and um our so-called green energy movement. And this idea of green capitalists is such a uh, an abhorrent um 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 term and it's it's really hurt the movement so they don't like that and they started right away uh trying to to get the film taken down off the internet so that you couldn't see it and their their first attempt uh failed and um it uh in fact it, it was so appalling of what they were trying to do to actually, it's, it's like a version of burning books. They they literally wanted the film destroyed, t- taken off the internet, and not seen by anybody. They failed at that. And PEN America, P-E-N, PEN America, which is the civil liberties group for writers and artists in this country, came to the defense of the film and, uh, and uh, attacked the effort to censor uh, the film. Uh, and to um, um, take away Jeff's right of freedom of sp- speech and expression. But it didn't stop there. They kept it going. Um, we're going to do a whole – we'll do a podcast on this. I'm going to – been meaning to just – but I just – I was going to do it a week or two ago, and then there's so many more things they have, and I thought we should just let let them keep behaving this way because we're going to expose all of them, and we're going to tell people what happened. We it's not going to not going to be a, a pleasant podcast, but um, uh, sadly, this is what happens when when people just want to raise some questions. And um, yesterday, uh, somehow somebody in one of these groups or connected to one of these groups or whatever. Uh, was able to uh, get it taken off YouTube, taken down after close to eight and a half million views on YouTube. Uh, if um, you know, if you went to it yesterday or last night, it's just a black screen saying that the movie no longer existed. It, it was so shocking to us in a in a in a way that we're already living with enough fascism, um, pseudo fascism these days to see liberals act in this way and to succeed in making sure that you cannot. I'm hoping by the time you hear this, if you were to go on my YouTube channel and click on it right now, um, there's the film. It's back. Uh, We, we were informed YouTube what happened. We informed them as to what happened. I think they were very concerned about it and they were working on it at the point when we started this podcast here. Um, but if not, if you click on it now and you get that black screen with the words, uh, no no movie for you to see, wow, uh, in a free society, uh, this is like the worst. <laughs> for me as a filmmaker, um, you're that afraid of the film where you just don't want to have the debate. Okay, you don't like it. That's okay. I don't expect everybody to like these films, you don't agree with it, you think we got something wrong. Okay, let's have that discussion. Let's let's have that. But instead, it's been nothing but really filthy kind of the kind of talk that comes from Trump. It's just been stunning to us. But obviously, there's a few people that believe they've got something to lose here uh, because they've got us all convinced that we can somehow save the planet. Uh, by solar paneling and the windmilling our way out of this. And that might have been true when Jimmy Carter put those solar panels on the roof of the White House 41 years ago. If we'd worked for the last 41 years to try and fix this and not have so much carbon going up in the atmosphere, it's too late now. It's way too late for that. We lost all that time. And um, and now those of us who are wanting to show you what's happened and and what we need to do to stop this, the people that are responsible for the so-called movement don't want you to see this film. It's, it's. Um, I'm going to wait uh, till I bring uh, Jeff and Ozzie, on, and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about it. My as soon as I'm off the microphone here, I have to get back to work to getting the film back up streaming on my YouTube channel. Um, how pathetic is that, that I even had to say those words to you? <sighs> it's, um, <sighs> I don't know. They'll, I think uh, Jeff wrote a, a statement and it's, it's uh, it'll be on his website, planet of the uh, and his um, on his Twitter. Um, I think it's called Planet Humans. Doc is the handle. If you just type in Planet of the Humans, you will probably find it. But um, I'll post it too. Maybe I'll post it on my my uh, social media so you can read um, his comments about this. Um, and then and we'll talk to you more about it um, here in the and hopefully in the coming days. Uh, hopefully it'll be back up. Shame on any of you who had anything to do with this. And if you don't think now that we're going to turn on the investigative reporter button in our heads and find out just who is funding you, people have a right to know. And um, I don't have a lot of time to have a lot of intramural fights right now. Not in this year. What's our one? What's our number one job, everybody? What is it? Right. Remove Trump. Remove Trump. Vote for the D. Whoever the, whoever's got the D by their name on that ballot. That's our number one job this year, not fighting each other. And the fact that they would do this during this time, they would take one minute away from the from Trump removal onto this is mind-blowing. So we're going to deal with it, and then we're going to move on. And, and we're going to work together, even if we don't like each other. We're going to work together with our one common goal to save this country from the malignant narcissist, um, the, the aspiring fascist that's in the white house. I also wanted to tell you that, um, on the, on the podcast, on the platform page here, um, because we are recording this here on the evening of, uh, of Memorial day. Um, I, I posted a picture of myself and my dad when I was a little kid. Um, we we're at the uh, New Calvary Cemetery in Flint. Um, his brother, uh, Lorney, was uh, killed in World War II in the Philippines. Um, just uh, really, just a few months before the war ended. And um, so we would always go out there to his gravesite and um, and kneel down and say a prayer and uh, um, and I loved. All the stories our dad told us about our uncle—he sounded like the greatest guy. It sounded like what a loss that he didn't—that he didn't live. And my grandmother was so distraught when she got the news that he had died. That when they finally shipped his body back, he was killed by a sniper um, to Flint, and they had the the funeral. And this is, this is, I think a good two, three years it took to get the the body to come back and buried him in the, in the cemetery. And, um, she convinced my grandfather to, to move. They want, that she wanted to live. There was a little neighborhood across the street from the Catholic cemetery and she wanted to live there. And so they rented a house like literally across the street from the cemetery because she wanted to be close to her son. And she would go there every day. um, Uh, His loss, I mean, I'm born, I was was born nine years after the end of World War II. Um, But it was all through my sisters, my my childhood, the stories of Uncle Ernie and um, what he meant to the family in general possibilities of what could have been um and on this day we would always we would always uh go out to the cemetery so that's what that little picture is if you see that there on the on the site and um um and my parents are gone now a lot of us you know a lot of loss a lot of loss right now just in the last few months um i um you know, I ask everybody, and, and I, I, before we went on, on the live, um, I asked Derek if, if, uh, you know, he'd known anybody or anybody lost. And he said yes. And it's got kind of quiet and back, you know, back here in his hometown of New York City. Um, that's a, it's a common story with a lot of people right now. I'm so sorry for all of you, for all of your, anybody who has that loss. Um, and um, uh, I hope this podcast, offered some kind of realistic hope that there are things we can think of and do to come out of this and be better people and be better to each other and, uh, and to live in a different, a different world. I know we can do this. I know it. I do know this. I know this about so many of you. Thank you for being, for being um, part of this podcast. And uh, um, thank you for watching Jeff's movie. Um, Thank you for caring Thank you for your little acts of kindness every day that you do for other people. Um, and uh, let's let's have let's dream about what's ahead of us here in the next few months. I think I think it can be something pretty damn good. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Rumble with Michael Moore today. This has been Rumble, and I have been Michael Moore. And I thank Derek Hamilton and, and uh, our executive producer, uh, Basil Hamden, uh, for um, uh, his work on this uh, podcast. And our, um, our sound engineer and uh, editor, Nick, uh, you're listening to this. So thank you very much uh, for helping me do this, all of us in our remote uh, locations. Um, and uh, be well, everyone. Uh, wash your hands, and uh, and think about the good that we can do on the other end of this pandemic. Be well.